is the technology of the body, which is not always fully cooperative, especially as you age. And then there's the technology of the internet, which is shut down. So then one cannot print one's talk. And one remembers why one always wrote one's talk out before <laughs> with handwriting. And we have a lectern that plays. <laughs> and no place for one's extra notes. OK. So what you do at a moment like that when you can't print out your talk and you have to adjust quickly to the circumstances is you go into your body. So for me, putting on my okesa and being completely aware of the touch of the fabric on my fingers instantly takes me down to presence. So this is the Parinirvana Sashin for February 2019. This is the last full day. But when the mind hears the words last, sometimes it goes, oh, OK, we're, we're done. We can relax. But this is the time when all the practice you've done since you arrived can really bear fruit. So don't let up. Continue in a, in a very smooth way with your practice. Just gently keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing, whatever limits you think you have arrived at. There are no limits. Yesterday, we heard about the Buddha's last teaching journey and about the tainted food that led to his death. And as he was traveling to Kusinagara, where he said to Ramananda, this is where I'm going to die, he took several rest stops, and at the next rest stop, after he had uh, eaten the tainted food at the dinner that Kunda offered him, it is said that he stopped by the Kakutha River and bathed his last bath and drank water. And remember that um, the Buddha and his disciples couldn't take any food that wasn't formally offered. So they couldn't pick an apple up off the ground or off a tree along the way. The only thing they could take without it being formally donated was water. So that's what he drank. And I remember he was dehydrated, too. And he rested in the lion's posture by the river, as we did yesterday on the right side. And this is something that the traditional Buddhist monks do as part of meditation when they get tired, they meditate lying down. And then every full moon, they meditate and hear Dharma talks into the night. And then Ajahnamaro has described them as then lying down in the lion's pose and in the dark of the night discussing the Dharma. Just a lovely image to think in the dark of the night, these gentle voices coming out and talking about their very favorite thing.
And then he took care of some uh, unfinished business. He called Kunda and told Kunda not to feel any remorse and that no one should blame Kunda for giving him the tainted food. And he told Kunda that there were two great blessings. One was to provide food to the Buddha right before the Buddha's enlightenment, before he sat down that last night. And the other is to provide food before the Buddha went into his final nirvana. So he predicted that the merit of what Kunda had done would be great, would be very supportive to his practice. Then he walked five more miles to get to what we call Kusinagara. In the Pali Canon, it's called Kusinara. And it said that he stopped 25 times in that five-mile trip to rest his failing body. And then he came to a grove of sala trees owned by the Malas of Kusinara, the Mala were a warrior tribe. And he said, Please, Ananda, prepare for me a couch between the twin sala trees with the head to the north. I am weary, Ananda, and I want to lie down. So be it, Lord. And the venerable Ananda did as the Blessed One asked him to do. Then the Blessed One lay down on his right side in the lion's posture, resting one foot upon the other, and so disposed himself, mindfully and clearly comprehending. Usually this, this is a formula about when he lies down to meditate. And usually it ends with uh, being fully mindful of the time of arising. So this is very interesting. You may have noticed this in your own life, that sometimes you can lie down to sleep and set uh, an alarm clock in your head, and then to be sure you set a mechanical alarm clock. But you wake up a few minutes before the mechanical alarm clock goes off. So um, the Buddha and his disciples were able to do that. They didn't have mechanical alarm clocks, so they had to set that in their head. But this time that's omitted because he's not going to get up. At that time, the twin solitaries broke out in full bloom, although it was not the season of flowering. And the blossoms rained upon the body of the Tathagata and dropped and scattered and were strewn upon it in worship of the Tathagata and celestial mandarava flowers and heavenly sandalwood power from the sky rained down upon the body of the Tathagata and dropped and scattered and were strewn upon it. And the sound of heavenly voices and heavenly instruments made music in the air out of reverence for the Tathagata. So uh, the Buddha said uh, to Ananda, this is very lovely. <laughs> and yet, Ananda, that the Tathagata is respected, venerated, esteemed, worshipped, and honored in this way by the trees, mm -hmm. by nature, but that is not the best way to honor me. And he goes on, whatever bhikkhu or bhikkhuni, layman or lay woman, abides by the Dhamma, lives uprightly in the Dhamma, walks in the way of the Dhamma. It is by such a one 
that the Tathagata is respected, venerated, esteemed, worshipped, and honored in the highest degree. Therefore, Ananda, thus should you train yourselves. We shall abide by the Dhamma, live uprightly in the Dhamma, and walk in the way of the Dhamma. So it's like saying to your children, you know, a lovely funeral, that's nice, but what I really want is for you to carry on and share the benefit of what I have taught you and how we have lived together a virtuous life, how we have worked to end suffering in the world, and how we have worked to find ease and equanimity and true happiness in our life. That's what I pass on to you and hope that you will continue. So when the townspeople of Kusinara hear that the Buddha is dying, someone goes and lets them know and spreads the word throughout the town. Then they all come to the grove. And all coming is thousands of people. So it's getting quite crowded. Uh, And crowded, as earlier the Buddha told a monk, there was a monk who was distressed that the Buddha was sick and dying and was fanning himself. You know how people sometimes frantically do something for someone who's sick or in trouble. And there was a monk who was in front of the Buddha fanning himself, fanning the Buddha. And the Buddha said, get out of the way. And, and everybody went, what? He said, no, get out of the way. And they said, why? And, he, and the Buddha said, because all the dev- can't you see? All the devas and heavenly beings are gathered here to see me one last time, and you're blocking their view. And then Ananda sees this huge crowd that's come, and he realizes that if the townspeople all go to see the Buddha one by one, it will take forever. So he, uh, ever the administrator and personal attendant, he organizes them into a waiting line composed of tribes and clans and families together. They have to come in, in clumps. So it doesn't descend into complete chaos. You can imagine people, you know, elbowing their way to the front of the line and so on. There are scrolls of the Parinirvana, and we have one somewhere. I'll see if I can find it by tomorrow. Shows the disciples and the devas and the other other heavenly beings and the trees around the Buddha and the Sala Grove, and then animals who come that are also grieving in sorrow that the Buddha is dying. This is a poem called The Buddha's Last Instruction. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha, before he died. So this is often uh, misinterpreted as meaning you don't need a teacher. Be an island unto yourself. But that island, he says, is the Dhamma. That's your refuge in an ocean of suffering. And be a light unto yourself means wisdom and compassion uh, are within you, but you have to cultivate the light. You have to cultivate those lights so that your mind becomes clear enough to illuminate, to, to... allow wisdom to emerge, eternal wisdom, prajnaparamita, to emerge and to allow the the eternal force of compassion and loving kindness to emerge. Make of yourself a light. He means a light in the world, said the Buddha before he died. 
I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two solid trees, and he might have said anything, knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward, it thickens and settles over the fields. Around him, the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs, disattached in the blue air, I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills, like a million flowers on fire. Clearly I'm not needed, yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly, beneath the branches, he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. Then Ananda asked the Buddha about what he wants done with his body, saying that it was easy to come to the Buddha when, with a question like this when the Buddha was alive, but what are people going to do after he dies? So the, the, this one question arises in Ananda's mind, what am I supposed to do with your body? I never asked you, I never, you never told me. So this is very important for us. And those of you who have had grandparents or close relatives or parents die, you know that once they're gone, there were many things that you never thought of to ask. And now that history is lost. So I really encourage you to talk to your family now and get all the history that you can because it will be gone. Gone forever. And you can learn really interesting things by asking questions of your parents and grandparents. For example, I, I interviewed Hogan's grandmother on his father's side. And it turned out she eloped with an older man when she was 15. They just went on a train to the next town and got married. It's like, whoa. You know, it's like looking at me and me telling you that story. It's like, whoa, I thought you were an old woman and very, you know, sedate. No. <laughs> and then she had five kids in a row. <laughs> and my mother said, when I was talking about my mom, she was, she was telling me about how I asked her how she and my dad met and did they like each other to begin with and how did their families feel about it and so on. Then she happened to say something about, you know, when, when, you're, when your father would let me smoke, and I went, Mom, you smoked then. I mean, my, father, my parents didn't smoke or drink. I was like, Mom, you smoked? She said, yeah. Once a year, I would ask your father if it was okay if I smoked, and I would smoke one cigarette. I said, <laughs> why? <laughs> she was an artist. She said, I just love to watch the smoke just curling up. It was so beautiful. Okay, I didn't know that about you, Mom. <laughs> so really, you won't find these beautiful things out, little details about your family, unless you ask. So here's something important, too. I remember the exercise that I did with you where you imagine that you drop dead. 
just bring it to mind for a moment. You drop dead here and you saw the commotion in the zendo and the paramedics coming and then you popped out and you were floating up somewhere above and watching everything, watching this dead body being pounded on and zapped and then put on a stretcher and carried off and more could to do in the emergency room and then finally pronounced dead and then off it goes and you saw your memorial service or your funeral. You watched your possessions be dispersed over time. You watched how your family and friend coped. So did it, as you were watching that whole thing unfold, did it matter to you what happened to your carcass? So you didn't care, probably, what happened to your carcass, but the people who loved you did care. So making your wishes known now is very important for their ease of mind. So for example, Dano, who's living with us, who's now in the hospital and is clearly in his last weeks or months, is getting clearer and clearer. He, he had an acute episode and he didn't come back to where he was before. But he, has, he took this to heart. He took the death class that I teach, and he took it to heart. And he's got his will, and he's got, we have a file with his last wishes. He's made arrangements with the funeral home for his cremation. So that just sets everyone's mind at ease. Instead of chaos, what shall we do? Well, my father, my father had dedicated, had donated his body to um, the medical school in Albany, where, which is where I was a candy striper and, and a nurse's aide. And uh, he died suddenly. He died of a stroke. And if we, it, it w we could say, here's what he wants done. And this was immensely comforting to know. This is what he wanted done. And some people were worried about it because in our church, it was every kind of belief from my mother feeling that God was essentially the force of love, although later she contemplate, she contemplated God a lot. She decided that it had to be fair, so probably God was energy, including the energy of love, but all energy. And then we had people who, who were upset because they felt if my, bother, if my father's body was cremated, he wouldn't have a body for the last resurrection, you know, for the final days of judgment and resurrection. So our minister had to explain that, you know, if God could make your body to begin with, he could make your body during resurrection, which is something my mother didn't care about at all. <laughs> <laughs> but some people care, so you have to pay attention to it, because if you make these preparations, you're passing ease of mind, ease of heart, onto people who are grieving, and, they're, and, and sometimes kind of out of their mind, their mind cannot concentrate. You can't think what to do. So let people know, but also add a disclaimer. If you can't do this, it's okay. So they don't feel guilty if they can't do it. Right? So this is a lot of practical stuff that I teach in the, in the death and dying class. Right? But it's really important. Make your wishes known for their ease of mind. So the Buddha tells Ananda exactly what to do, how to wrap his body in two layers of linen and then in teased cotton wool so it's very soft, and, and put it in a metal box with oil and then cremated, and then after the cremation to erect a stupa at the site where the cremation occurred. And then the Buddha 
says, and, and why do you think that I would say that my remains are worthy of the stupa? Because usually at that time, the stupas predate the Buddha, but they were usually for royalty. And so the Buddha said, you know, it might occur to somebody, is he, like, is he just like really stuck up and he wants a, a stupa for his ashes? So it's really, his answer is the same as why we visit, we might go, if we were in Atlanta, we might go and visit the grave of Martin Luther King. Or if we were in Washington, D.C., we might go to the Lincoln Memorial, or we might go to the Vietnam Wall. It's interesting, one of, uh, the wife of one of our long-term members, uh, Kay Forsyth, visited just before the beginning of Session. And she hadn't been to the monastery for years, so I gave her a complete tour, and I took her to the Shrine of Vows. And she was moved to tears. And she said, it's like being at the Vietnam Memorial. So know that even the vow that you put on a plaque and hung out there is really important to people. So why do we visit the grave or the Vietnam Memorial? Or why would, does the Buddha say, please erect a stupa? He says, because people's hearts will be calmed and made happy to know that this person lived, that this person lived and died here. And that we know that this person, the Buddha, lived and died with a wonderful mission in life as did Martin Luther King or Abraham Lincoln. And then people will have faith in the Buddha's teachings and will be inspired to practice. And then they will be reborn in a better realm. They will undertake practice. They will know happiness in this very life. So it's very inspiring if you've ever gone on a Buddhist pilgrimage or a religious pilgrimage. It's very inspiring to go to Japan and see 800 or 1,000-year-old temples it's very, very inspiring to go to Sri Lanka and see 2,000-year-old Buddhist monasteries in ruins, but still there. You can see the layout, you can see the dining hall, see the trough that the monks ate their food from. It's really amazing. And it's no longer just you little person struggling to concentrate on your breath for 10 minutes straight. But suddenly our vision expands and we realize that we're part of a mighty stream, a worldwide stream of people of benevolence and generosity trying to transform and benefit the world. It's a huge sangha. It's a very old sangha. It's a sangha that we hope will continue into the future for at least 2,000 more, more years. There's a very poignant part of the Mahaparinirvana Sutta now as Ananda takes a break from all of his administrative tasks and realizes that the Buddha is truly dying.
Then the venerable Ananda leaned against the doorpost and wept. So apparently there's a building nearby. He leaned against the doorpost and and wept. I am still but a learner and still have to strive for my own perfection. But alas, my master, who was so compassionate towards me, is about to pass away. So Ananda, even though he memorized everything that the Buddha said and could recite it by heart, and even though he was with the Buddha day and night for decades, he still hasn't realized awakening. So he's grieving because he feels like his teacher is going to die and his opportunity is now lost. And the Blessed One spoke to the bhikkhus saying, where bhikkhus is Ananda? The venerable Ananda Lord has gone into the vihara and there stands leaning against the doorpost and weeping. I am still but a learner and still have to strive for my own perfection, meaning his own enlightenment. But alas, my master, who is so compassionate towards me, is about to pass away. Then the Blessed One asked a certain bhikkhu to bring Venerable Ananda to him, saying, Go, the master calls you Ananda. So the bhikkhu goes and tells Ananda, The Buddha is calling you. And Ananda comes and bows down to the Buddha and sits down on one side. Then the Buddha spoke to Ananda, saying, Enough, Ananda, do not grieve, do not lament. For have I not taught from the very beginning? With all that is dear and beloved, there must be change, separation, and severance. Of that which is born, come into being, compounded, and subject to decay, how can one say, may it not come to dissolution? There can be no such state of things. Now for a long time, Ananda, you have served the Tathagata with loving kindness, indeed, word and thought, graciously, pleasantly, with a whole heart and beyond measure. Great good have you gathered, Ananda. Now you should put forth energy, and soon you too will be free. So he takes care of this last bit, too, like he did with Kunda, reassuring Ananda, just keep practicing. You're almost there. And he's thanking him for his service. And then he actually, in front of all of the gathered people, lay people, and uh, ordained. He talks about uh, Ananda's wonderful qualities. So he gives Ananda that extra little boost. I mean, those of us who've worked with the inner critic know that sometimes we just need some, some soothing, some soothing words that tell us that we do have value, that we are doing well. And the Buddha gives that to Ananda in, these, in the last moments of his life. And then, um, you know, several other things happen. Somebody comes, kind of pushes his way through the crowd and says, I've got a, I've got a question for the Buddha. And the, everybody tries to shoo him away, but the Buddha says, no, no, it's okay. The Buddha can see that this person, that, that, that he can say something to turn this person's mind. And the person asks the question, and the Buddha gives a few words, and the person's mind is turned instantly. So the Buddha is taking care of all the last details. Mm-hmm. Then the Buddha tells his disciples, if you have any last questions, don't feel regret later that you didn't ask. Ask now. And nobody speaks. And he asks again, if you have any last questions, 
I'm still here and I could answer them for you. Nobody speaks. And then he says, okay, if you're too embarrassed to ask a question, maybe you think it's kind of a foolish question, then ask somebody else to ask it for you. But nobody does that. So you see all the details? You know, it really tells you they're talking about something that happened. Mm -hmm. And then the Buddha utters his last spoken words. All compounded things will vanish. Practice earnestly. Then the Buddha descends through the jhanas, the meditative states, the deep meditative states, one by one. The first jhana, the second jhana, the third jhana, the fourth. The sphere of infinite consciousness, the sphere of nothingness, the sphere of neither perception nor non-perception, the cessation of feeling and perception. And then he ascended up to the level, back up to the level of the fourth jhana, actually to the first and then back to the fourth, and then he passed away. So this part of this story has always intrigued me. Why did the Buddha go down through all of the meditative states that he had practiced so often? And then why did he come back up to the first and the fourth jhana? And I had an inkling, and I asked uh, Ajahn Amaral about it, and, and he confirmed what I thought, that it's like a great whale that has, for its whole lifetime, learned to go deeper and deeper into the ocean, down to the bottom of the depths of the ocean, and come back up. And this is the joy of the whale's life. This is the expression of the whale's life energy. And so as the whale is dying, it has one last dive all the way down to the bottom of the ocean, and then back up to be with his fellow whales, and then he dies. And also, it's a kind of gift that, that the Buddha gave us, because the fourth jhana is attainable by anyone with, with deep, concentrated, determined, sustained practice. The first jhana, the fourth jhana, where the Buddha passed away, is attainable. So, you know, we would all aspire to be in the first jhana or the fourth jhana when we die. I don't know if it'll be possible. But I do know that our practice will sustain us and help sustain others. So then the Buddha's body was prepared and cremated, and only the bones remained. And I'm going to ask um, that a box be passed around. You can just look at it. These are some of the cremains of our very dear friend, Kyogen Carlson. So Kyogen was one of the two teachers of the Dharma Rain Sangha and died very suddenly of a heart attack, massive heart attack. And uh, we helped with the funeral, and we were given some of his bones, his cremains. So many of you may never have seen cremains or seen what comes out of the cremation oven. And this is what it looks like. It's recognizable bones. You can see you know, vertebrae and teeth and so on. And uh, in this country, they're ground up into what are called ashes. So they're kind of like a coarse sand gray, whitish, darkish sand, um, so that if they're buried and people dig them up, they don't get worried. If, you know, if the bones are buried, people don't get worried that there's a murder or something. So that's, and, and it's a little bit more acceptable to most people to see something that looks like sand rather than looks like a tooth. But you know, in, in Buddhist practice, we're pretty frank about life and death. So we take the bones. 
And we have we have some of the remains from Mezumi Roshi too in that white container below the skeleton on the altar. They usually reside as do Kyogen's bones in the Kaisanda in the Founders Hall. So the Mali, Malas of Kusinara, who were the warrior castes, after the cremation, laid the relics of the Buddha in their council hall. And, they, and it said that in the sutra, it says, it's, they surrounded them with a lattice work made of spears, and then encircled them with a fence of bows, like bow, bows for bows and arrows. So these were their tools of trade, their honorable sacred tools of trade, and originally had been of the Buddha too, before when he was younger, and paid homage to his relics for seven days with music, dance, song, flower garlands, and perfume. Then a truly human thing happened. The rulers of the neighboring seven kingdoms, where the Buddha had traversed and taught, all set up a clamor and said, well, we're of the warrior caste, just like the Buddha. We too are worthy to receive a portion of the Buddha's relics we will enshrine them in a stupa and have our own festival. And what do the malas of Kusanara say? Nothing doing. We will not part, this is a quote, we will not part with any portion of the relics of the Blessed One. But a Brahmin, a Brahmin comes along, so this is the, uh, the precursors of, of Hinduism uh, in India, Brahmin, a holy man, and he reminds them <laughs> that the person whose bones that they're fighting over has spent his life teaching peace and metta, friendliness. <laughs> so this is so human because people fight when people die. And it's their, their, it's their grief that comes out fighting with, in fighting with each other. You know, I have a very, very loving family and uh, after my grandmother died. She had five children. Uh, my sister went to the memorial service in, in, uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, and she came back with a little pin for me and my other sister, because my grandmother had a collection of little pins. You know, women wore pins in those days on their clothes. Uh, and she kind of rolled her eyes and she said, you know, this family that I have never seen argue in my entire life, started arguing over little things like these little pins, you know. It's just the way grief comes out. And so this is exactly what happened. But the Buddha, you know, he only had a robe and a bowl. Nothing of value, no, not even any little rhinestone pins. <laughs> so they fought over his skeleton. So please don't do that to me. <laughs> you can, you know, pass it out puts them up in the cemetery we're planning on building up in the forest. Don't fight. And we've been chanting the Shadiraimon, the homage to the relics of the Buddha. The Shadiraimon is traditionally chanted uh, when a person dies and you're bathing the body. There's a ceremonial way to bathe the body, uh, which I hope you will do from Nyingenhagen. And then it's also chanted uh, during funeral services. So the Shadiyaramon is homage to the relics of the Buddha, and that's what the malas were doing. They were honoring the relics of the Buddha, honoring the Buddha's life and death. But when we chant the Shadiyaramon, 
we have to go a step deeper than physical relics. Hmm? Where are those relics now? Are they in India in the National Museum? Hogan and I were in India a number of years ago, and we went to the museum in Delhi. And right, right outside, there's a, one of the edicts of King Ashoka just sitting there. You could touch it. It's stunning. Uh, and Ashoka, if you don't know about Ashoka, I'll tell you in a minute. But then we went inside, and we were wandering around with all the, you know, seeing all the treasures. And we came into a room, and nobody was in the room except a guard. And there was a display that had a rope around it. And the guard was there to make sure people didn't go beyond the rope. And there was a case, and there was a sign. And the sign said that these were the relics of the Buddha that had been unearthed in the 50s, 1956, I think. And they, they were pretty sure that they were the relics of the Buddha. And they, they, were, they were encased in like a little gold casket and then a silver casket and so on, many, many containers, each larger than the other, kind of like a Russian doll. And they were on display, and Hogan and I were just like, oh my gosh, are they really the relics of the Buddha? You know, like the hair stood up on the back of your head. And, and Hogan doesn't have hair, but you know the feeling. <laughs> And so we, 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 we got showed, and we got as close as we could, and we were bowing to the relics. And the, the, the guard said, are you Buddhist? And we said, yes. And so we opened the little rope, and you know, we went right up and looked at him. It was an amazing feeling. And may, some of you may have seen the tour of the relics that comes, where they have relics of you know, various Buddhist teachers and supposedly of some of the Buddha's disciples. And I thought it was kind of hokey when it came to Portland. I thought, oh yeah, okay, well, I'll go along with it. But they had this beautiful display and told who the, the little relics were from. They're called Shanirai, so usually they're kind of like little jewels. But it was awesome. It really, I mean, I don't use the word awesome seriously. It was. It was, it was amazing. So there's something there. I don't know what it is. But besides those little stones or those little bones, you are the relics. You are the living relics, not only of your grandparents and parents, but of Maizumi Roshi and of his father. You are the relics of the Buddha. That's why you're here. They are your skeleton, your bones, the jewel that is you, sitting right here in the posture of the Buddha, doing the work that the Buddha and all of the ancestors did for over 2,560 years. The most precious relic is right here. Please venerate yourself. Please appreciate your body and mind for the earnest, truth-seeking work that you have been doing for the past five days. You are the relics of the Buddha. So back to the sutra, peace was restored, and the relics were divided into eight portions, and each kingdom where the Buddha had taught got a portion of the relics and built a stupa. But then later, when King Ashoka, who was the first a truly Buddhist king. His story is, I won't tell you the whole story, it's very interesting. He 
uh, had won a great battle, and he was out on the battlefield looking at the spoils of war, and he saw all the dead bodies, and he saw all the grieving relatives coming to pick up the dead bodies, and all the widows and all the children that were orphaned, and his, his heart turned. We talk about the pivot. His heart turned. He was horrified at what he had done, what the suffering he'd created. And he converted to Buddhism. And then he became uh, the most generous king, generous to all religions. He forbade the sacrifice of animals. Um, he opened stupas all over India. Op he opened the, the eight stupas and took out the relics and distributed the, them, they say, in 84,000 stupas maybe thousands of stupas all over India. He had um, uh, places for travelers built. He had clinics built. He had trees planted. He had uh, canals dug. He had bridges built. He just, he just, whatever could be done to help relieve the suffering of his, unnecessary suffering of his subjects, whatever was in his power to do, he did and also promoted Buddhism, although he, he honored all of the other religions that existed in India at the time. But he felt that to have, for people to have a stupa near where they lived would inspire them to practice, that they could feel the sacred presence in their midst and be encouraged to practice. So it's quite possible that the relics that we saw in the Delhi Museum were from one of those stupas. I've talked about several fears that we have about dying, and many of the exercises that we've been doing have, we hope, have helped you move into the reality of death and dying, and, and to see a little more about, hmm, maybe it's not something so fearsome. But one fear that people often raise is, what if I die when I'm afraid? For instance, maybe I, I'm attacked and murdered. Uh, or maybe I die when I'm demented and I can't hold a peaceful, equanimous state of mind. Then what will happen to me? Because you know, the, in some traditions, the mind state you hold at the end is, will determine your, your destination. So uh, the Buddha gave a very practical teaching on this. One of the uh, Buddhist students became very worried about this notion of continuity after death. And uh, he had come to hear the Buddha preach and said, when I leave your presence, I feel uplifted, mindful, and serene. But then I leave the grove where you're teaching and I go back to the city, which is populous and congested. Suppose I'm run down by a stray elephant or a horse or a cart or a murderer and I'm killed. Then my last thoughts would be muddled and fearful. Then what would be my destination? And the Buddha reassured him and said, don't be afraid. Your death will not be a bad one. When a person's mind has been fortified over a long time by faith, virtue, generosity, and wisdom, the crows, vultures, hawks, dogs, jackals will eat his body consisting of form composed of the four great elements 
originating from mother and father, built up out of rice and gruel, subject to impermanence, to being worn and rubbed away, to breaking apart and dispersal. So this is all happened to the body. We can see that in the exercise we did. But the person's mind, which has been fortified over a long time by faith, virtue, learning, generosity, and wisdom, that goes upward. That goes to distinction. And then the Buddha used a simile. He said, suppose that a man submerges a pot of ghee, which is melted butter, in a deep pool of water and then breaks it, like the breaking part of the body. All of its shards would sink downward, but the oil would rise upward. So, too, will your fortified mind rise upward. Do not be afraid. So what he's saying is that all of the practice that we're doing will be there, will be present, even if we're not conscious of it. And it will determine where that energy, that uh, wholesome energy of our practice goes next. You can think of it as where we go next, but it will be passed on and benefit others. So the Buddha taught some basics about death. And I'm going to just review them um, because we didn't outline them the way the early Buddhists liked to outline things. So first, death is inevitable even for the holy and enlightened. Everyone has to die. Our lifespan is decreasing continuously. The amount of time spent in our life to develop the heart-mind is very small. Second, the uncertainty of the time of death. Human life expectancy is, un- expectancy is uncertain. There are many causes of death. The human body is so fragile. And third, only spiritual practice can help us at the time of death. Our possessions and enjoyments cannot help. Our loved ones cannot help. Our own body cannot help. He taught that fear of death is good because it spears you, this is a healthy fear of death, it spurs you not to waste your life and to undertake spiritual practice. He taught that there is something, something, we might call it energy, that continues and determines future existence. Whether that future existence is me, and I have some memory of what I was before or not. So I asked the Dalai Lama one one time, do you remember your past life? And he said, when I was young, I remembered it quite clearly. But as I've gotten older, it's faded away. So some people do remember something that they call or we call a past life, and others don't. Maybe we get fragments of of it. Hmm? The Buddha taught that the future is born out of our actions in the present. The present is a result of the accumulation of our actions in the past. So our actions, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, our practice continues in some form. And our future in the next minute, or 10 minutes from now, or tomorrow, or in 10 years, is determined by our actions now. That's why our chant says, we 
are the inheritors of our karma, of our actions. And then the Buddha said, realize the deathless. Realize the deathless. That which is eternal, which was not born and will not die. That which is part of you. We've been chanting every day the Genjo Koan. And there's a very interesting part. Firewood turns into ash and does not turn into firewood again. But do not suppose that the ash is after and the firewood is before. We must realize that the firewood is in the state of being firewood and has its before and after. Yet having this before and after, it is independent of them. Ash is in the state of being ash and has its before and after. Just as firewood does not become firewood again after it is ash, so after one's death, one does not return to life again. So what is he talking about, firewood? What is the firewood he's talking about? And what is the ash? So you might think, well, you know, anthropologists dig up remains from old skeletons, and they can retrieve DNA, and they can prove that this ash, these fragments, used to be a Neanderthal woman who was about 25 years old. It's not about that. Dogen Zinji is using a metaphor. After one's death, one does not return to life again. What kind of death is he talking about? Is it different from the death of the body? Is this why we say in Zen, die on the cushion? It doesn't mean for your body to die. It means to die to your enchantment for yourself. To die to your hatred for yourself. To die to your morass of self-centered thoughts and emotions. To turn yourself inside out, literally, from here to here. To discover your true and beautiful life out here in the crystalline raindrops dripping from the pointed green bamboo leaves. In the first bite of savory food at lunch, every lunch, in the exquisite pleasure of a long and gentle out-breath, in the deep silence and peace in the zendo as we let go of being, of being beings, beings of struggle, and discover then that we are beings of ease. How to do this work? How to do the work of the Buddhas and ancestors? We're given clear instructions by all of our teachers. Dogen Zenji says, non-thinking. The Komyozo Zanmai is Koen Ejo's writing after Dogen Zenji, his chief disciple, says, 
Don't identify with thoughts. If you don't propagate them, they will not continue themselves. If you don't propagate them, breathing in, breathing out, hearing, touching, without thoughts, he says. All through the day, be dead to personal views or fragmented thoughts. It's actually quite simple. But it's also not easy to do. We have a lifetime habit of thinking, of worrying, of liking, disliking ourselves or other people, of relying on thoughts, believing that's who we are. One practice people sometimes do is, and I found it very useful, is as a thought arises, and you try to watch the place where thoughts arise from, sit and watch, catch it just as it's arising. And as soon as you catch it, ask, is this about me? And if it is, then let it go. Or you can say, is it really important to think about now? Usually the answer is no. Remember what it was like in the exercise we did to be dead? Without a body, without agency, with no speech, inner or outer, no actions. Just clear, expansive awareness. Can you be like that for longer and longer times? Can you sit, walk, and work in clear awareness? It's like the times you're very busy, say, in the kitchen. Service has started. People will be coming down the sidewalk any minute. And you stop worrying. And you just become very focused. You become pure activity. Push the cart out. Wash those last pots. Wipe the counter. Sit down. The clappers hit. And chanting emerges from your chest and out your mouth. This is action samadhi. This luminosity is unobstructed. You experience it. You are unobstructed. This is inconceivable freedom. This is what this practice can unlock. We are told again and again that it is thoughts that obstruct our experience of pure original mind, the deathless. We are told what to do, to break the enchantment of thoughts, to become bored with your thoughts, to ignore them, to watch them arise and not propagate them, to replace your thoughts with mantra or elaborate visualizations in some traditions, to actively practice non-thinking. So try it for a few seconds. Actively practice non-thinking. I used to do it by pretending my mind was a puppy and like gently push it down. Okay, quiet, 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 quiet. No moving. Like that. Try it for a few seconds, try it for a few minutes. Non-thinking. We sometimes try it by becoming more interested in something else, like the breath. More interested, 
in the breath and in our thoughts, or becoming more interested in sound than our thoughts, or using a question like, what am I, or what is alive or move, to dive into the amazement of what is really happening. It's so simple. All we have to do is stop thinking, and the door to what is hidden behind thinking opens. Then a whole new universe of practice begins. It's simple. It's simple. Just stop thinking. And yes, it is difficult to stop thinking. It's difficult to ignore thoughts, let alone stop thinking. But everyone can do it. Remember what Auden said, we would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our delusions die. Please do this most excellent work. Please sink into the ocean of the moment and transform. If you are not afraid of life, you are not afraid of truly knowing and living your life to the fullest. If you have discovered the enchantment of stepping into the unknown of the next moment a million times, then when the door of death opens, you will step through with curiosity. When death comes like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut, when death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering what is it going to be like that cottage of darkness. And therefore, I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood. And I look upon time as no more than an idea. And I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular and each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending, as all music does, towards silence. And each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say, all my life, I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened and full of arguments. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. Because you are here, you are not content to just visit the world because you are here, amazement will be the outcome. 